And please turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, where we'll continue this series of sermons, picking up at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. It may seem almost jolting to us to come to a passage like this one this morning after last week's message, filled with joy and, and happiness, almost unthinkable that tears should follow so quickly after laughter. But I think that any seasoned Christian here will tell you that this too is only scripture ringing true to our experience. The fact is the Christian life is filled with both and often one following right on the heels of the other. You know many of you how life in Christ on earth carries with it the highest and purest and most wonderful of joy. And immediately in the company of the most exquisite sorrow and deepest grief. So it has been, we learn from the passage before us this morning, so it's been for the saints all along. There is a time for dancing, but there is also a time for mourning. And in ancient Jerusalem, those were often cheek to jowl, and in our day too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for the grace that we must have, and by which alone we cannot possibly live this life to which you've called us, a life that is sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time and in cycles too. We pray that you will help us, Father, to benefit from your word now, to receive it, to digest it in our inmost parts, and live it. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 1, first five verses. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting, and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. It was on a Wednesday afternoon that Charles Robertson, a cash-strapped 19-year-old, decided he would go to the Jefferson State Bank and take out a loan. He went, filled out the application, but then just left. He'd apparently changed his mind about the loan and opted for a quicker plan. 
He returned a couple of hours later with a gun, a bag, and a note demanding money. And the teller complied, and all of a sudden, Robertson was holding a bag of loot. Figuring the police were fast on the way, he dashed out of the front door, and he was halfway to the car when he realized he'd left the note. And worried that they might use it as evidence against him, he ran, ba ran back into the bank and snatched it out of the teller's hand. Now, with the note and the bag in hand, he ran a block to his parked car. And that's when he realized he had left the keys on the counter when he returned for the note. At this point, one detective chuckled, total panic set in. Robertson ducked into the restroom of a fast food restaurant. He dislodged a ceiling panel and hid the money in a 25 caliber pistol. And then he took off, running down back alleys, creeping behind parked cars until finally he reached his apartment where his roommate, who knew about none of this, greeted him as he walked through the door with the words, I need my car. Robertson had borrowed his roommate's car for the getaway. Your uh, um, car, um, stolen, your car was stolen, he said. And panic struck in when the roommate called the police to report his stolen car. Well, of course, it was only a matter of about 20 minutes before the police found the car, tried the keys from the bank and the ignition, and went to the address of the stolen car and picked up Robertson, who confessed and went to jail. Now, maybe you haven't stolen from a bank, and maybe you haven't uh, taken a car that didn't belong to you, but the fact is that we have all broken God's law, and we have all broken it utterly and completely. We have broken all of the commandments of the Lord. We are no less guilty than that 19-year-old. But we're just like him in so many ways as well. We have sinned, but we want to act as if we haven't really done anything wrong. We, we sin, and then taking leave of our senses, we try to hide. We try to duck and lie our way out of responsibility or, or justify our actions, even deceiving ourselves, even trying to deceive God as if that were possible. We reason frantically in our minds to cover up our sins, to argue them into mere peccadilloes, little things, excusable things. Evangelical vocabulary has even undergone a shift. You may have noticed pastors more and more speak not of sins, but of mistakes, of inappropriate decisions. Dear flock, in proportion to our minimization of sin, we minimize the gospel. In proportion to our minimization of sin, we minimize the gospel itself. The good news of the Savior means very little to people who underestimate their sin, who have never felt the woe of their iniquity. 
So these Christians before us in Nehemiah are a model of, of facing our own sin, calling it what it is, loathing it, mourning it, taking full responsibility for it, and taking it with full seriousness as the great and terrible offense that it is against a holy and altogether righteous God. What we have before us this morning may well be the missing ingredient in our nation today, and certainly from the church. Always when the Spirit of God has broken out in revival upon his church, whether in America or in England or Wales or Scotland or Germany, wherever, that revival is started with a true sense of the heinousness of the sin and the greatness of our offense against the Almighty and deep grief and tears over our sin. But to many in our day, this grand confession of sin with weeping and mourning before God seems altogether too negative, too depressing. And it's been observed many voices in the church are raised against this practice, if not actually denying our great sinfulness, even as a Christian people, at least urging us not to think about it. Not much, anyway. But that's a terrible mistake. Facing our sin, facing these unhappy facts, is a very positive part of any healthy Christian life and promotes the most happy and holy of consequences. Some of the holiest people that the church have ever known are those who have given pointed expression to this fact and to the great benefit that a sense of sin produces in a Christian, in a Christian life. Samuel Rutherford wrote, a sense of sin is a close friend to a spiritual man. John Fox, the author of the famous Book of Martyrs, put it still more strikingly, my sins have in a matter done me more good than my graces. Well, the people of God in Jerusalem knew the good of their sins when they were driven by them in confession and repentance to God. And, and we will, too, if we learn to confess them aright and not hide ourselves from them, not running through spiritual back alleys and dodging behind parked cars of excuses and justifications. But how? How shall we gain the good of our sins, the blessings that are to be found in genuine confession, contrition, and repentance of our sins? The passage before us teaches us three ways. First, we learn from Nehemiah 9 that in order for us to come under a true and beneficial sense of our sin, it must be the Word that does the job, the Word of God, that is. Did you notice how in the passage how directly their confession flowed out of their experience of the word. Look at the uh, verse 3 again. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Just as we saw in the last chapter, 
We see here again the conviction of sin and confession of it that come as a direct result of the work of the word of God read and preached to the people. True conviction of sin, genuine confession of sin are not things that can be produced at whim by the natural powers of human imagination. We cannot produce in ourselves the sort of contrition, repentance, and with it the sort of faith that pleases God. Only God can do that in us. Only God and his customary instrument for doing it is his word. Charles Spurgeon describes his own conversion as the work of God through his word this way. He writes, Through the Lord's restraining grace and the holy influence of my early home life, both at my father's and my grandfather's, I was kept from certain forms of outward sin, or outward forms of sin, rather, in which others indulged. And sometimes when I began to take stock of myself, I really thought I was quite a respectable lad and might have been half inclined to boast that I was not like the other boys, untruthful, dishonest, disobedient, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, and so on. But all of a sudden, I met Moses, carrying in his hand the law of God. And as he looked at me, he seemed to search me through and through with eyes of fire. He bade me read God's ten words, the ten commandments. And as I read them and remembered what I had been taught about their spiritual meaning as interpreted by the Lord Jesus Christ, they all seemed to join in accusing and condemning me in the sight of the thrice holy Jehovah. Then, like Daniel, my comeliness was turned to, in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And I understood what Paul meant when he wrote, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. For years, Spurgeon remained under the deep conviction of sin until one Sunday morning in January 1850, a snowstorm forced him to cut short his intended journey and to turn into a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. When he managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me, 
under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew to me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I'd not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right at home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. And lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Now here's the point. Where did he see that flowing stream of Christ's blood, flowing wounds? It was in the Word. It was under the exposing light of the word of God, and particularly the word preached, that Spurgeon was brought to his knees in sorrow and weeping, and then to his feet in rejoicing and peace. It was the very same word that brought these people in Israel to their knees and then raised them to the skies. And it's the very same word that will do the same for you. But you must be exposed to it, Christians. Oh, not just exposed, it must be your meat and your drink. Mark it. Read it. Hear it, Christians, because a word alone can do this work, which, though terribly painful at first, revealing to you the depths of the grievous depths of your depravity, the nature of your sin, is also the greatest joy and happiness throwing open before you the very gates of paradise. Second, we learn from this passage that in order for us to come under true and beneficial sense of our sin, it must be sincere hatred and sadness over our sin. It certainly was for them. They came, we read in verses 1 and 2, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth. 
dirt on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now you may be quick to say, well, those were just outward expressions. The sackcloth, the earth on their heads, the separation from foreigners and so on. Yes, they were outward expressions. They were. But they were outward manifestations that revealed and even aided those worshippers' hearts. Their inward grief was expressed outwardly, and the outward expressions of their, heart, of, of their grief aided the heart to feel deeply the gravity of their sin. We modern evangelicals at worship in America would do very well to take a page for ourselves here, acting as though we could somehow divide the body from the heart in ancient days, this was known as Gnosticism. In modern days, it is known as Gnosticism. We're wont to say that we can worship, specifically we can repent of our sins just in our hearts. Just in our hearts. While our bodies show no sign of repentance or grief at all. Now it's, of course, entirely possible to mimic grief or to mimic joy or any attitude with our bodies, while those attitudes remain completely absent from our hearts. I grant you that, of course. And God hates that sort of worship that honors him with lips and bodies, while the heart remains far from him. But it is equally true that real and genuine and heartfelt attitudes reveal themselves in sincere actions, bodily, physically, and are indeed aided by physical expression. The Bible's full of this. The sincerity of the soul, the spiritual realities manifesting themselves physically. The problem in this matter is that the pendulum often swings too far in one direction or in the other. Looking on the extremes of his own day, C.S. Lewis observed that when Catholicism goes bad, it becomes the religio, the religion that is, of amulets and holy places and priestcraft. Protestantism, in its corresponding decay, becomes a vague mist of ethical platitudes. Catholicism is accused of being too like all the other religions. Protestantism of being insufficiently like a religion at all. In other words, while Roman Catholicism can decay into merely physical outward actions, crossing oneself and kneeling and counting rosaries and so on, with no corresponding or inward spiritual reality, on the other hand, when Protestantism goes bad, it descends into slogans and spiritual lip service without any real spiritual or physical reality. Satan knows that too, and he plays on this. As C.S. Lewis illustrated brilliantly in another of his works, Screwtape Letters, in which Screwtape, a senior demon, explains to his student in crime, the demonic intern, Wormwood, that one of their 
poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want. Clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. Is Screwtape right? Well, of course he is. What we do with our bodies affects our souls. And what we do with our souls must affect our bodies, which is precisely why the people in Nehemiah's day not only repented, they repented with dirt on their heads and wearing terribly uncomfortable clothing made out of coarse goat hair. The lesson simply put is this. We must learn to confess not only from our hearts, but to confess our sins to the Lord with our heart and soul and mind and body with our strength, not only inwardly, but with tear ducts working, with neck muscles drooping, dropping our heads, with legs and knees that stand or kneel before the Lord. Genuinely sincere sadness over sins will demonstrate itself in our case, as in theirs, with expressions outward as well as inward. And then third, and briefly, we learn from the passage that in order for us to come under a true and beneficial sense of our sin, we must come corporately to confess our sins. That is to say, we must come together as God's people in the confession of our sin. Now, I hear you objecting, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying at all that the confession of our sin must not be something we do in private. Absolutely. Every day we must return to the cross. Every day in private worship and prayer we must be confessing and repenting of our sins. And you're my witnesses that I have emphasized personal confession when preaching those passages which send us to the closet but the passage before us today sends us not to the closet, but to the sanctuary. It sends us to the place where shoulder to shoulder we confess and bewail our sinfulness as a people before the face of God. We can do no other when we come together after all in the presence of this thrice holy God together. Our sins combining in this house to make us and to demonstrate that we are everything that Isaiah said we are, a people of unclean lips. 
There are many voices raised in churchy places today, this day, this hour, telling people that what they need most of all, really, is to feel better about themselves. Somehow I doubt that that is our modern failing. Failing to feel good enough about ourselves. The Bible's life-saving medicine is far different. It has a bitter taste at first. The people came together and confessed their sins. They didn't come together to say, I'm okay and you're okay, and to give each other a, a nice back rub. Or even, our parents have made some mistakes and and we've made some mistakes too. No, they came together and we must come together to confess our sin, our sin, and to lay it before the Lord in all of its filth and its heinousness, crying out to the Lord as we do in this house, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. A church who does that may lose some of its visitors in the process. There are plenty of churches designing their services these days to make people feel good. But I tell you, there is no church who knows and really experiences the joy, the thrill, the absolute ecstasy of sins forgiven. The blessedness of transgressions washed away and removed from them by God as far as the east is from the west as a congregation who falls to its knees before God together confessing not their mistakes, not their inappropriate decisions, but their sin to the Lord. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, do not run, do not hide from your guilt, dodging in back alleys and behind parked cars to avoid it. Be not afraid of the tears and of the pain of genuine, heartfelt, bodily expressed, sincere confession of your sin when the word of God searches and exposes your hearts and mind together in the house of God. Because here is the blessing. And here is the wonder. When we humble ourselves before him. When we bow before his throne of grace again. The scripture says. That he will lift us up. Amen.